This is the Edify Podcast for the servant. Newsflash, a lack of responsiveness to God's voice is spiritually detrimental. Now, that would almost go without saying. We understand that, but but that's that's not, everybody doesn't have that kind of knowledge. Just like the coffee cup has uh, on the side of it, the bottom of the side there, it says, uh, caution contents are hot. Well, duh, of course they are. <clears throat> that's how you're drinking coffee, but not everybody understands that. Or if they do understand it, they burn themselves, and then they in turn sue the company. The company can say, hey, we told you on the side of the cup, contents were hot, too bad, so sad. That's the kind of world we live in. When it comes to strength training, consider consider the hardening of a muscle. The athlete pushes against weight resistance over and over and over. And what this does is this induces muscle contraction. And, and so as the muscle contracts... Uh, against this resistance, damage is done to the muscle fibers themselves. And so through uh, what God has established, we call it uh, cellular recovery, okay? These fibers are either repaired or they are replaced. And so this this results in the hardening of the muscle, the desired result of strength training. That's what you want. But there is a muscle in the body where this kind of hardening is not desirable, which is your your heart, your blood pump. And as the heart hardens, um, a person can develop a condition called hypertrophic cardiomyopathia, maybe, myopathy, something like that. This condition forces the heart to work harder to pump blood throughout the body. What this does is this places stress, undue stress, on the heart. And what that does is that it, it's exposing a person to severe uh, health outcomes because of the hardening of the heart. So what is true in the physical realm is also true in the spiritual realm. The hardening of one's spiritual heart places a person in grave jeopardy, uh, and it results from that type of resistance. But in this case, it's a resistance not to something physical, but to the actual voice of God. Psalm 95 captures that reality. And as a person resists God's voice in his word, their heart becomes uh, calloused. It becomes unresponsive. And we're not talking about the blood pump now. We're talking about the spiritual heart, the seat of your emotions. And if it's left unchecked, it can even result in in failing to enter the final rest. And so Psalm 95, it, it brings a call to worship and joyful singing. And it, 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 that realistically, it breaks up nicely into two sections. And, and this, the first functions um, as a call to worship um, with singing, the first five verses. And it pictures the worship um, and the director of that worship, or the worship leader, we may say, um, exhorting Israel to sing as they, they move toward uh, and into the, to, to the sanctuary. Um, and and the, the invitation to sing in verses 1 through 2 calls for a loud and exuberant expression of worship as they're going into the temple, we would say. Now, the verb rendered sing for joy is intensive, and it means to let out an entire series of cries of jubilation. Um, and as such, this, this, call may, this call may have followed a, a very noteworthy act of divine deliverance. When God delivered them, they, they would sing this praise. So in fact, the the verb that's rendered "shout joyfully" can be can you can be used to express the idea of raising a war cry. Uh, so this fits the metaphor of the rock of our salvation or the deliverance at the end of the second line of verse one. And so all of this calls for a loud and spontaneous expression of jubilation to the Lord. After all, 
as the creator of the depths of the earth and the mountains and the dry land, the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods, verses 3 through 5. And so there's a call to, to worship in joyful singing, but there is also a call to worship in humble heeding. Now, this thing it suddenly shifts the gears and it changes. It, it throttles down. Joyful exuberance goes away and dissipates uh, to, to humble reverence. So following this loud and, and, and this, this, I guess, megaphone shout for joy, Israel exhorted, uh, is exhorted to bow down and to kneel. Now what this does is it expresses both inward and outward submission. It's verse 6. The ground for this response is the covenant between God and Israel. Verse 7 says, For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. But then... Almost with a, a shock or an, an abruptness, there's a prophetic warning that's given. Today, if you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And so notice the, the, the effects of today, he says. So first it creates a sense of urgency. Uh, what one does with God's voice today is of vital significance. And so second, it makes that idea of today, not just the day this psalm was first penned, obviously, but every day it is repeated so in fact, it makes very it makes every hearing of God's word a day like today. So every generation of the people of God are recipients of this warning, and so to harden the heart, the, not the blood pump, but the spiritual heart, the seat of emotions, is to resist God, and it's rooted in unbelief. So the real test of the authentic authenticity of uh, one's worship is not loud and spontaneous expressions of jubilation, but it is rather heeding God's voice in his word. So this this is, there there is absolutely a, a historical context for this kind of warning. The psalmist cries um, and uses uses the word uh, Meribah and Massa, and, and those two are, are wilderness locations, which, which would have brought to, to mind a specific moment of contention. Israel knew this. That Israel was... That they contended with God uh, some ten times, Numbers fourteen twenty-two, and these historical references specifically point back to Exodus seventeen in the first seven verses. Israel had witnessed the power of God in the ten plagues; they had experienced supernatural deliverance in the parting of the Red Sea. But in this notorious account, they found themselves in need of water. So they put the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, the Tetragrammaton Yahweh, to the test, saying, is the Lord among us or not? And so the Lord was, that term was used for the sake of covenant, that he was, it was a covenant name given to those folks for, for, his, for his agreement. And that was Exodus 17, 7. And so given what they had witnessed, they had no reason to question God's presence, but they did so because of stubborn unbelief. And so what this does is this hardens. And, and this hardness, really, real, realistically, of heart uh, was expressed throughout Israel's time in the wilderness. And so God loathed that generation, and he swore in his anger, truly they shall not enter into my rest, Psalm 95, 10 through 11. So this, this solemn declaration of judgment refers to Numbers 14, uh, 22 and 23. And so surely all the men who have seen my glory and my signs, which I performed in Egypt and, and in the wilderness, yet have put me to the test these ten times and, and have not listened to my voice, shall by no means see the land 
which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who spurned me see it. So, the psalmist connects the, quote, rest of 95 and verse 11 uh, with entering the land of Canaan. And, and yet, by that time, Israel was already in the land. Therefore, the psalmist is, is broadening the significance of God's rest. So, that first generation of Israelites is a paradigm um, for the people of God at the present. So, that generation experienced God's redemptive work, no doubt. Uh, they then entered the wilderness uh, of these these wanderings because of their unbelief and their hardness of their heart. They never, they never, they never reached the intended destination. Even though they saw God's work, they didn't, they didn't reach it. And so the psalmist comes to this present generation of professing believers, and, and he addresses us in the midst of our own wilderness wanderings. Those who have heard the good news of the gospel, they have professed this faith in Christ. Uh, they've been washed of their sins through baptism by faith in Christ Jesus. They find themselves on a pilgrimage, you and I do, between the redemption of our souls, the, 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 the removal of the sin, the filth, and the final rest to where we're headed. And so this, this pilgrimage, and it's filled with many different tests and trials and temptations. I can, I can name you a few that I've, that I've had just this past week. The call then is not to be like the first generation. Otherwise, you and I, Jake Sutton and everybody listening, we too may come short of the promised rest, the true final rest, and proving that we were we were never Christ to begin with um, realistically. Um, and some people some people um, some people wrestle with Calvinism and the idea of those who did not, or, or, or did not to continue in salvation whenever Christ to begin with, uh, so that, that can be potentially true. Not automatically true, but that can be potentially true. Where you see some people, they'll hear the sermon and they're pricked in their heart and they're, teared, they're, they're with tears and cries and, and they go forward and they have sorrow, but not according to the word and not according to God. They have this worldly sorrow and they want this get out of hell free card is what they want. And they want to, re- they want to relieve themselves of the pain that they have in their heart, and they, they find that relief, and Jesus offers them that relief, and they receive that relief. Um, but their heart was bent on sin. They weren't really repenting, and they um, they really didn't change their mind. They didn't truly repent that idea. They just wanted some kind of relief for their guilt. And so, realistically, just because they went down in the water and came up doesn't mean anything, because the water isn't what saves you. We know that. Baptism is the answer of a good conscience, faith in Christ Jesus, resurrection from the dead. Um, it's not the physical water itself. Is it necessary? Yeah, absolutely. But the faith of the person and where that faith resides and abides, that's that's crucial. We're saved by grace through faith. Uh, we know this. So in Psalm 95, 7 through 11, the psalmist, this is exactly how the author of Hebrews uses this psalm. He says in Hebrews chapter 3, 12 through 15, Take care, brethren, that there, be no in, that there not be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart uh, that falls away from the living God. So that implies that you were with the Lord, but now you're falling away from the Lord. He says, But encourage one another day after day, not just three hours, not just on the one hour of the Sunday worship period. No, day after day, as long as it is called today. And the last I checked, today is called today. 
Why? So that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. He says, for we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm unto the end. While it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. Unresponsiveness to God's voice in his word is a frightening reality. So we're talking about the hearer. See, that, that hardens the heart. It's, it's a serious thing to center in the preaching of God's word. Ken Ramey writes, When we hear the truth over and over again but fail to do anything about it, our heart grows harder and harder to the truth and eventually becomes completely insensitive to God's word. No matter how many times it might be pricked by the word of God, we are unfazed, just like when we poke a callus with a needle. The more we sin the more calloused or hardened our heart becomes to the Word of God. That's also found in expository listening. But yet there are a plethora of ways that believers resist God's voice. They may procrastinate and put off changing what they know needs to change. They may purpose to change but fail to follow through. They, they may make excuses. They, they may blame shift. They may claim God made them that way they may rationalize the severity of the issue they they may compare themselves to other people they may deem certain sins respectable or not as bad as the other ones or they they may even analyze their sin in light of scripture and find a way to deem it permissible and and use the scriptures in a wrong way each of these responsive cult responses cultivates resistance to the word a resistance that hardens the heart and is spiritually detrimental. The, the preaching of God's word provides an urgent and decisive moment of reckoning. Fellas, you're not up there talking to them. You're not up there giving them a speech. You're up there with urgency, and, dis, and, and you are in a decisive moment of reckoning for their very soul. The story is told of three devils in training. They approach Satan, and he asks them, What are you going to try today? The first person says, I'm going to tell them that there is no God. Satan responds, well, you can certainly try, and a few fools will believe, but the entire universe shouts the existence of God. And so he looks to the second, and the second demon says, I'm going to tell them there is no judgment. And so Satan responds, he says, that is a better idea, although humans have a built-in sense of accountability and understand that actions have consequences. Satan then finally shifts and looks to the third, and he says, I'm going to tell them that there is no hurry. Satan responds, that'll do it. Let them listen to the word of God and then whisper in their ears, this is good stuff. You should do something about it tomorrow. But see, the truth is tomorrow never comes for some people. Procrastination is the devil's fare. Therefore, today, today, and today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. May God bless you in your preaching and in your hearing of his word.